I'm John Burke, Managing Editor of New Project Media. Uh, welcome to the latest edition of the NPM Podcast. A busy news cycle for clean energy this summer got much thicker on July 27th, when Senator Manchin unexpectedly compromised on the clean energy bill with Senator Schumer. The resulting Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 features um, a little bit of reduced spending of clean energy of $369 billion versus $555 billion under the Doom Build Back Better Act, but does keep intact a lot of the same elements. The act still faced opposition from Arizona Senator Kristen Sinema, but she also signed off on late August 4th after Democratic leaders removed a provision on the carried interest tax loophole. With the majority intact, the bill passed the Senate this past Sunday. The House is expected to vote on the bill as earlier as early as today. With this in mind, uh, we welcome Alan Marks of Millbank uh, to discuss some of these developments. Alan, welcome to the program. Hi, John. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So um, you've been through it all at this point. What can you tell us about the bill in terms of the positives and negatives that come out of it and how it affects the clean energy industry moving forward? Uh, sure. I mean, this is a major piece of legislation. There's um, no understating the impact that it could have. It's the largest climate-related bill uh, to pass the Congress and bolsters, uh, to a very large extent, the plans that the Biden-Harris administration have to cut greenhouse gas emissions uh, in half by 2030. Uh, the main way to do that uh, under the bill is to stimulate investment domestically in uh, clean and renewable energy, including novel new uh, technologies, as well as traditional ones like wind and solar, uh, and also in domestic manufacturing of the key components that are part of the supply and value chain uh, for those projects. Great. Um, so I guess one element that, that did not show up uh, in um, this act relative to Build Back Better was the utilization of direct pay which in Build Back Better was viewed as an alternative to tax equity. Uh, direct pay does appear in this act, but in a slightly different uh, form. Um, and I believe it could be used in um, carbon capture. And then there's certain exemptions such as uh, tax exempt entities and Indian tribes. Um, can you explain uh, how this works mechanically? Sure. I mean, let's take a step back. I mean, one of the things that's always been challenging with respect to tax credits for renewables uh, is the question of how long the credits would be available and what kind of hoops one has to jump through to get a project uh, under construction or uh, in service by various deadlines. And the deadlines, you know, keep getting pushed out. Occasionally, the production tax credit or the investment tax credits have been allowed to lapse by Congress before being renewed. Under this bill, uh, they're extended, both the ITC and the PTC are extended out through the end of 2024 for projects to begin construction before then, and then they've got several years uh, you know, to, 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 to be completed. And starting in 2025 under this bill, there would be uh, a kind of a transition to an, a technology agnostic clean energy tax credit regime with projects being able to elect whether they want a production tax credit or an investment tax credit. In order to use a tax credit, traditionally you have to own the project, and most developers do not have a tax base where they can fully take advantage of those tax credits, so they need to monetize them somehow. And the preferred way to do that has been to bring in uh, investors into the project who pay money up front in order to receive allocations of 
uh, tax attributes, including not just the tax credits, but also depreciation as well as cash distributions uh, as an owner over time. And those are tax equity investors. And there's only so many of them. And when the tax rules were uh, not necessarily going to be in place for more than a few years, when it was uncertain how these credits would be extended, uh, there was no incentive for a lot of potential investors to to bulk up the resources and the expertise to invest in tax credits the way the, the existing major investors do. Uh, that's where direct pay uh, came on the table. So the idea that the government would cut you a check so you, as an owner or developer of a plant, would no longer need to have you know one of these uh, complicated or elaborate tax equity structures. And that is not included in this bill for most renewable energy sources like wind and solar that have been depending on these tax credits. Uh, there are exceptions. Direct pay uh, does exist under this bill for clean hydrogen projects using the new investment tax credit that's available for them for standalone uh, energy storage. Previously, storage could benefit from an ITC only if coupled with a renewable project like a solar power plant. Now, standalone storage can benefit from an ITC, uh, although not direct pay. Uh, and then carbon capture and investment in some advanced manufacturing. So, for example, uh, the incentives under the bill that are available for uh, factories that in the United States will manufacture components for wind farms, components for uh, solar power plants, uh, and components for uh, batteries, battery metals, critical materials, and that sort of thing. Those those will qualify under the, for, with with the new ITC for them uh, for direct pay. And then, as you mentioned, there's this whole other branch uh, where direct pay is allowed under the bill, and that's with respect to nonprofit uh, developers or owners of projects, uh, tribal governments, uh, some other agencies, the T uh, Tennessee Valley Authority, DVA, for example, is singled out in the bill as being eligible for direct pay. Now, why is that? Simply put, they're not taxpayers. So if they, if they don't have a tax base, they don't pay taxes, they can't use a tax credit. So the only way to get the subsidy in if it's in the form of a tax credit to a non-taxpayer entity like that is with the government um, sending the money and that's that's direct pay and, and, and that's why it's set up that way. Uh, that could have a really big impact, by the way, on certain agencies, for example, community choice aggregators, uh, some nonprofits or co-ops that would like to have developed their own uh, renewable power sources without having to purchase them uh, from private developers. Uh, now they'd be able to be on a level playing field and take advantage of the same economic benefits of, of the tax credits, just like a private developer would. Oh, very interesting. And obviously, um, readers of our product uh, will note that um, California is the you know a, a hive of activity for CTAs. Um, be curious to see if there's more of an acceleration of CC, CCA formation elsewhere as well um, as a result. Yeah, and if you look, if you look at you know not just CCAs, but just this whole idea of how the grid is um, changing in some locational ways. So uh, there are provisions in the bill that help microgrids uh, with tax credits now and ITC for microgrid uh, microgrid controllers. Uh, there are provisions in the bill which uh, do not favor transmission because the transmission ITC was left out, but that do favor other things that might might benefit uh, distributed generation. So this shift to more local uh, generation closer to load centers uh, is somewhat encouraged in parts of the bill. Interesting. And you uh, nicely transitioned to my next question about transmission. Um, yes, there was an ITC 
uh, included in Build Back Better. Um, it's not in this version. Um, there are certain grants and, and financing provisions in the bill, I believe 200 billion uh, for financing. And then there's a separate um, grants in there, um, which doesn't, you know, it puts a dent in how much is needed to build transmission lines, but it's still, you know, money and, you know, help, um, you know, move, move that along. But why do you think um, it was excluded specifically among many other things? And do you think it's going to be a, a, a bad thing? The fact that their uh, transmission developers aren't going to be able to advantage this at all? Yeah, I mean, 80% of U.S. transmission is owned by or, or built by investor-owned utilities. And to leave transmission off the table uh, to take it out of Build Back Better and not include it in the current Inflation Reduction Act, I think is a real missed opportunity to encourage investment in, in transmission that really is a critical link in that chain of developing more uh, decarbonized energy generating sources like renewables and having them service uh, you know, uh, load centers where they may be relocated. And, and of course, there's differences in different parts of the country. I just look at three. You look at the West Coast, look at the Midwest, and then look at um, some parts of the East Coast, uh, PJM in particular. Uh, on the West Coast, a lot of the large utility-scale uh, renewable power plants, uh, solar farms in the desert, for example, uh, wind farms, which may be remote uh, in, in Tehachapi or in Cabazon or in uh, eastern San Diego County, uh, remote from load centers. Uh, the future of offshore wind. And none of these things are located right in the middle of cities, right? They're not in the middle of the, the, the areas with the highest demand. So you need transmission to, to pull those resources in. And uh, we could talk for hours, but we won't, about you know, ways in which uh, California and uh, other uh, uh, regulators and entities in the Western grid have been dealing with that to encourage that sort of development. Um, PJM is a very different uh, case. Uh, that's an area which controls... Uh, the regional transmission organization, which controls the grid in the mid-Atlantic states and parts of the Midwest, large parts of the Midwest. And there you've got a system which is today based mainly on coal, natural gas, especially, uh, and nuclear assets for slow generation. And to transition that to renewables often means locating new power generating sources closer to load centers. So how that affects the transmission system is interesting. Capacity markets are interesting. The regulatory rate design is interesting. Uh, there are things that can be done to, to harmonize that. But transmission upgrades are maybe not the key piece. Uh, instead, what you have is a huge backlog of, of projects trying to seek interconnection and uh, you know between one and 2,000 projects that just can't get online and would like to. Uh, and that's a backlog, I think, as much as anything is is studying how the new intermittent resources will impact the grid, uh, which may or may not require significant investments in additional transmission. And the last area is the Midwest. If you look at MISO, I don't, don't see how you can have significant opportunities for new wind and solar uh, in MISO's territory without significant transmission upgrades. And we've seen in the past how successful those can be. Texas, of course, is a shining example where major investments in transmission lines facilitated massive new investments in wind and solar. So why do you think it was left out? Okay. Cost, I suspect, but I'm not sure. Okay. Thank you for that. Um, so this naturally goes to offshore wind, um, you know, where there's going to be a demand for new transmission over the next decade, you know, for certain 
this being, of course, the offshore to onshore uh, transmission system um, that'll connect, um, you know, again, these massive gigawatts of power that you'll see uh, the Biden administration talk about, you know, transported to, to their customers on the east and west coast. Um, and um, one of the announcements that came surfaced in mid-July before the mansion compromise, um, you know, uh, was uh, making a series of announcements around FEMA and the Department of Interior, and this included accelerating um, wet energy areas in the Gulf of Mexico, which um, just had not been addressed yet. Um, we've been busy covering uh, the New York bite in the Carolinas and, and later this year, uh, California, of course. Um, but we really hadn't gone around to the Gulf of Mexico yet. So I guess in your view, um, again, this uh, the bill does uh, help offshore wind. There is an ITC uh, tax credit affiliated with that. Uh, sorry, was it a PTC? Excuse me. Um, but how do you um, see the I, ITC? Uh, you, you were right the last time. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. It is an ITC. <laughs> uh -huh. Too much. Too much news, Alan. Um, so how do you um, think the sector uh, benefits from this bill, number one? And then number two, um, be interesting to get your perspective on how you see the um, Gulf of Mexico offshore wind market shaping up. Sure. So I mean, offshore wind benefited already from last year's bipartisan infrastructure bill and benefits further here. The ITC uh, uh, for offshore wind, given the cost of those projects and the complexity of them, having that extra runway, having the extra uh, in tax incentives. I think those are critical to make those projects uh, pencil out and to accelerate that development. Uh, one of the things which will also be critical, of course, not just for offshore wind, but especially in that area, is permitting reform. And there is talk as part of the compromise between Senators Banchin and Schumer of there being a follow-on piece of legislation which will streamline federal permitting. Uh, that could include something you know, ambitious, like dealing with uh, accelerating timelines for multi-agency reviews under NEPA. The, uh, there are already things which were done in the bipartisan infrastructure bill to have a single federal dashboard and timelines and parallel agency reviews uh, as opposed to doing them serially where they might take longer. Uh, but there's certainly still room for improvement there. And around offshore wind in particular, one thing that does concern me in the new bill is there are provisions that would restrict the ability of the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management to give new leases uh, in the outer continental shelf for offshore wind projects, and also the same restrictions or similar restrictions on the Bureau of Land Management granting new rights of way for wind and solar assets to be developed on federal lands, unless there are, is also a massive and ongoing and repeated expansion of federal leases for oil and gas drilling, both offshore and onshore over the next decade. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Talking about deal flow and how this bill might affect it, um, you know, if anything, you know, this in some ways does validate a lot of the dollars that went into buying platforms that took place over the last two years. Um, you know, I'm thinking um, it may put a new shed a new light on standalone storage and some of those developers, um, because that's the that's the real nuance here. Um, you know, the wind and solar simply got an extender of, of their current um, you know tax breaks. Um, here for the first time, this is incentivizing and you know sort of uh, you know acknowledging how important standalone storage is going to be, you know, in the coming years. Um, but what are your, what are some of your observations about you know the the deal flow going forward? Um, whether we're likely to see more, whether inflationary forces are going to sort of 
simmer things down a little bit. You know, what what's your um, what are your forecasts for um, this neck of the woods? Sure. So, I mean, let's step back from the bill for a moment. And I, I do think that, you know, if inflation moderates, if supply chains get unkinked, um, all of those things will help uh, investors in the long run uh, in this area. I, th- I think the bill does provide some more tailwinds. Uh, for one thing, it should help on supply chains because of the benefits um, ultimately in spurring domestic manufacturing and workforce training and development. There are provisions tied to the tax incentives that would uh, give bonuses in some cases or penalties, depending how you look at it, uh, for some of the tax credits um, that encourage the use of domestic supplies, uh, investment in domestic manufacturing, and paying of prevailing wages and apprenticeship programs for labor. So all of those things over time should help to um, make supply chain risks less. Uh, what they'll do for cost, you know, to the extent there are increases in cost, there are uh, outs that give developers excuses if things are not available here in the meantime, and they can still qualify for the full credits. Uh, and I think there's a, a sense of a kind of a pragmatic balancing uh, in the bill between trying to encourage domestic content and workforce development, but 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 not to be unrealistic if that would slow down uh, development of projects. From uh, you mentioned inflation, you know, over time, this bill, according to the projections I've read, should result in a lower cost of energy. But I really don't think that's the key. To me, I think it's the idea of of insulating uh, electric power consumers, ratepayers, from volatility associated with grids that's dependent on fossil fuel generation. So we've seen, for example, in natural gas prices, a massive drop in prices for most of the last decade for natural gas, which allowed for massive new investment uh, economically and efficiently in newer, cleaner gas generating assets. Uh, If peaking power is less expensive, then it's easier to integrate renewables into the grid because they're an intermittent resource and being supplemented in advance of storage by natural gas has been a real um, uh, asset. And perhaps low gas prices have in some sense, made it harder in some areas for renewables to initially compete. But I think at the end of the day, they've actually made it easier to uh, to have integration into the grid of, of more intermittent resources. We've seen a big spike, of course, in natural gas prices in the last year, uh, up over $9 in MMBTU. Uh, that will likely, if you look at the forward price curves, come down next year, probably be cut in half. And so that will help to to, to moderate some of the inflationary impact we've seen um, from from high energy prices uh, going forward, you know, if if you don't have that volatility, or you're worried about natural gas going up and coming back down and going up and coming back down, and how that could impact uh, both inflation and and energy prices and affordability, you know, if you've got a sunk cost, uh, high upfront cost perhaps, but a sunk cost in wind and solar, but no fuel costs over the next ten or twenty years, then that smooths out uh, power prices and makes them much more predictable. I think makes it easier for budget planning. Great. And just to finish it off, and thank you again for your time, Alan, as always, uh, the project finance market, um, it seems like, again, it's been a pretty smooth engine this year uh, in general. Um, You know, I don't know how this bill would impact it one way or the other. Um, It's a competitive market. Uh, The the projects that are getting done, I mean, they've looked, the project chains had a tough year. We can all agree on that. But the projects that are getting done are getting competitively priced. 
Um, and if the supply chain starts getting better and better, you know, you're going to see more deals and, you know, more of a competitive environment. But um, what are your thoughts, at least for the rest of the year, as you see the project finance market shaping up, either by, you know, the, the direction of this bill or just otherwise um, for the for 2022? Yeah, look, I mean, the, the market's pretty robust. I think the market is going to be more robust in the second half than it was in the first uh, for sometimes a lot of the usual reasons. I mean, tax equity deals, for example, have often clustered in the second half of the year, especially in the fourth quarter of the year. That's that's not unusual. We'd expect to see that again this year. Uh, I think long-term interest rates have not gone up very much. That's why we, at times this year, have been seeing an inverted yield curve with short-term rates being higher than uh, long-term rates. What that means is that there is, I think, still confidence in um, the, the present value of future cash flows, which is the basis for project financing, uh, and, I, and, and long-term interest rates, which are you know necessary to finance these projects, are still manageable um, and consist with models. So I think to the extent that this bill makes investments in renewables more attractive and more affordable, that is attracting more attention. I mean, we're already getting calls from uh, potential investors and funds that are not already active in this sector that are looking at it more seriously. I think you know energy, especially clean energy, is poised for real growth. I think some of the areas like energy storage, uh, biofuels, uh, sustainable aviation fuel, for example, uh, clean hydrogen, these are areas where you're going to see continued investment and even earlier stage by some of the technology players that are willing to take on more more risk, not just the typical construction and development risk of a project, but but also technology risk and commercial risk and the risk of of, of bringing up to commercial scale some of the newer technologies. Uh, those will be big. I think you will continue to see investment as well stimulated by the bill uh, in carbon capture and storage. Uh, one thing the bill does do. Uh, in addition to the credits for that, is reduce some of the thresholds. So it's easier to qualify for the credits if you're uh, an, an oil company or refinery, an industrial facility, uh, or a fossil fuel power, uh, power plant, and you're trying to take advantage of, of carbon capture as a way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, we'll see more, more investment in that area too. Uh, and you know that's, some of that is longer term or medium term, but I think this year the market is looking, looking pretty robust. The last thing I'd mention is one of the things that slowed down investment at the earlier part of this year uh, were some of the trade cases and trade uncertainty around solar power uh, components, especially imported from Southeast Asia. And, and as a result of the two-year suspension of the auctions uh, investigation, uh, there's more certainty there. Uh, so that, I think, is also uh, opened, uh, kind of helped people to open their pocketbooks with a little more certainty on, on solar power. The one thing that I think is still a challenge in a lot of areas, though, is access to the grid, access to interconnection uh, facilities and queue positions, that, that, and, and then transmission constraints uh, and some of the uncertainties around uh, state and regional regulation. That, that's the next area, I think, to, to look for improvement. Great. Well, that's all the time we got. Uh, Alan Marks, thanks for joining the podcast, uh, and please tune in next time. Work out. Thanks, John. Pleasure. Thanks again, sir.